Welcome to The Vergecast, the flagship podcast of Unhackable Encryption. I'm your friend, David Pierce, and as we speak, it is currently day eight of me having COVID. I don't have a headache anymore, and I've mostly kicked the cold symptoms because I just drink tea all day now, but I still kind of get tired, like, walking up and down stairs, you know? Luckily, I work from home, so I don't have to do that very often. Just go from bed to desk and desk to bed. It's a, it's a lifestyle. Anyway, coming up on the show, we're going to talk about what you should know about how your data gets collected and used now that the Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade. We're also going to talk about recommendations and why it's so hard for the internet to just show you stuff that you like. And we're going to talk about Asus's ROG, or is it ROG, lineup of gaming PCs, and which ones you should buy, and why it's so freaking hard to figure it out. Let me finish making this tea. It's called Shenandoah Blue, in case you were wondering, and it is delicious. And then I'll slowly trudge upstairs into the home studio, and we'll get into it. This is The Vergecast. See you in a sec. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it, you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. First up today, obviously the big news in the world is that the Supreme Court recently struck down Roe v. Wade, and in doing so, totally changed the way the United States regulates abortion services. In the days since the ruling, there's been a lot of information and talk out there about, well, a lot of things. But one of them is how your online data, through period tracker apps, social media posts, even search history, can be used by governments or law enforcement to find out whether you had an abortion. It's a tricky question with a lot of overlapping parts about what you should do and how it really works. So Alex Kranz and I grabbed The Verge's Corn Fife and Nicole Wetzman to try and make sense of it all and figure out what you need to do to stay safe. Alex, Nicole, Corin, hello. Thank you all for doing this. We're hello. here. We're in the office. Yeah. We have lots to talk about, but I want to start with period tracking, because I feel like to me, the thing that I have seen over and over on Twitter over the last several days is this like loud admonition to delete your period trackers and that that is suddenly a hugely scary source of data. That's all I see on my Instagram, too. Constantly on my Instagram. It's just like delete it. And I'm like, do I? So I guess, Nicole, do I need to delete my my period (laughs) tracking apps? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about period tracking apps is that... While they have a lot of data about you and your cycle, and that data could theoretically be used against you mm-hmm. if you were in a place where abortion or certain types of healthcare were criminalized and you were kind of being targeted for that, you know, that could pose a problem. But 
this is like not the biggest risk that we're talking about. This is actually a very small piece of the things that are actually scary in this sort of post-war landscape around data and privacy. This isn't a way that we've seen people targeted mm-hmm. in the past because we are we have already seen people targeted using health information because they're suspected of, of having an abortion or, or seeking out abortion-related care. So, you know, the period checking apps are a piece of this. They're a small piece of it. They are something that experts sort of think maybe we're going to start to see this become more of an issue. It hasn't been so far. I mean, here's the thing. If you want to delete your app, you should delete your app. If it makes you more comfortable, you should delete it. Deleting it is probably a good step, particularly if you're in a place where you think information you're collecting about yourself could come back to haunt you. It is maybe a little bit necessary, but definitely not sufficient is how I would characterize it. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that's going to come into play once you're already the target of an investigation. It's not something that, at least yet, we're seeing as like a let's scrape all this data and find people that we're going to come after. Because you guys have dug deep into this. You've been digging deep into this. What is the data that's kind of being used against people to find people to prosecute under these new laws? So I think, yeah, I'm just going to chime in and, and second what Nicole said about the period tracking. Yeah. You know, as a reporter, it covers a lot of privacy issues here at The Verge. I absolutely agree that it is never, as she said, a bad idea to delete an app that you think is collecting too much data on you. Uh, maybe we should just delete all of our apps. Yeah. We would be a lot more safe. But in terms of how that meets a, a legal and regulatory framework, you know, because we have the Fourth Amendment, data cannot generally just be searched without a, a warrant. Mm-hmm. However, once there is a criminal investigation, once there is a, a probable cause, then that's when law enforcement agencies will start sending subpoenas to tech companies. And there are a lot of times that we do see data like search history, um, like other app data can become part of the case. And unfortunately, now we're in this awful situation where a whole lot of reproductive health procedures are potentially criminalized, and that does bring more data to the table, potentially. So the data itself is like not necessarily being used to say, oh, that's a person we need to go after and attempt to prosecute. It's after they've already identified someone, then they're going to go back through their records, go back through their history, their search history, look through their apps and be like, yes, got them. At least so far. Okay. Yeah, that's sort of what we've seen historically over the past couple of years. And that is sort of how people, I think, are expecting things to proceed. I do think that is not to say that this isn't a hypothetical risk that is real. Yeah. And, you know, law enforcement is tech savvier than they have been. And these anti-abortion groups are savvier. They use data. And so I don't think we can say that this sort of like aggregate level, big picture stuff is not going to be used in this way. I think we haven't seen it so far. And it's sort of up in the year how it is is going to end up being used. I think we're still waiting to kind of see how these different groups that are going to be coming after people mm-hmm. are going to make use of this data. We just, I think, don't really know the answers. Because it's to not that yet. just going to be law enforcement, especially in places like Is it Idaho and Texas where there are these bounty systems that are encouraging non-law enforcement people to, like, just go out there and abortion vigilantism or something? Yeah, abortion vigilantism. That's that's exactly it. Unfortunately, that's another just awful part of this new landscape is a new legal framework that was developed prior to the Roe overturn. Mm -hmm. So with the intention that it would be able to skirt protections for abortion as they previously were. But... The Texas SBA law, as you mentioned, 
kind of deputizes private citizens or organizations to go after people to pursue anyone who is suspected of terminating a pregnancy and to receive a financial reward, so to be incentivized for pursuing them in that way. Again, I, I think it's fair to say we don't know exactly how that will shape the landscape. We mm -hmm. don't know exactly what kind of information they will have available to them and how they will be able to obtain it through subpoenas or, or other methods. I think it also definitely fits into this bigger picture of surveillance of pregnant people that mm -hmm. has been going on for, for a really long time, again, way before the, the overturn of, of Roe. There was a, a piece that ran in MIT Tech Review about anti-abortion groups and the amount of data that they've been collecting from, say, physical surveillance of abortion centers, just standing outside with a notepad and pen, collecting people's license plate data, yeah, taking photographs of people, trying to identify them. Now we're in a situation where that could all be evidence in a, a criminal case. We're thinking about the ways that people are being targeted kind of at the front end. Like mm -hmm. all this evidence comes into play after, obviously, where it's yeah. going to say, we think that you had an abortion or, or had a healthcare procedure that is now against the law. And here's all the information we're going to use to prove that. The way that people are being flagged as people to be investigated are, are much lower tech than anything we've yeah. been talking about. It's someone coming into a hospital with a miscarriage okay. and being... Because we've seen that we've yes. seen we've seen women have gone into hospitals with miscarriages, and former spouses, former partners have said, "Ah, uh, 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 yeah," which is terrifying. Yeah, so that's you know that's an analog situation. You see situations where doctors are reporting people that they think had an abortion or attempted to have an abortion to law enforcement. Isn't that like a HIPAA violation? That is not a HIPAA violation. Oh, oh, oh. Drew, should we do the HIPAA stuff? Should we get into it? Yeah, let's talk about HIPAA. This is what I was going to ask about, because I think this is the like the other piece of this. I mean, we've talked about, you know, search history and location data, which I want to get into also. But I think this question of like, where does this process now start, mm -hmm. I think is way more complicated certainly than I realized, and I suspect more complicated than most people realized, and actually comes from, like, in a certain way, it would make more sense if it came from, like, period tracker apps. But that is, to your point, not mostly how this is starting. And also, honestly, the last couple of years of the pandemic as well have really revealed what HIPAA is and is not. And HIPAA is not, like, a magic force field protecting your medical information. In fact, it is... <laughs> incredibly leaky and has a lot of problems that have become clearer and clearer and clearer. So HIPAA, as it is written, prevents covered entities. Okay. So these are like hospitals, health organizations, like category of covered entity from disclosing identifiable health information without your consent. Okay, But there are a lot of ways that information can be disclosed under HIPAA that is like perfectly part of, of the law. Something that comes up a lot is that de-identified data is like fully not covered. So a hospital can batch off de-identified health records to like a tech company and be like, here, you can just have this information and use it to make products. Like that's totally fine under HIPAA. Something that's really relevant here is that if a covered entity, a doctor, suspects that a crime has been committed, it is permissible under HIPAA for them to disclose medical information that is relevant to that crime. So potentially, 
if you are in a state where it is now criminalized abortion and you go out of that state and you get an abortion and you come back and you go to your general practitioner in that state and they're like, wait a minute, I suspect that this person has had an abortion. They could report you. Yes. I mean, the crossing state line thing, I think, makes it more complicated. But like, say if you're in a state that has criminalized abortion, you come into a doctor's office bleeding. Yeah. And the doctor thinks that you did something that would be trying to get an abortion, trying to obtain an abortion, they could then call the cops and tell them and disclose medical information about you. Yeah. And that would be totally fine under HIPAA. If a doctor goes to respond to a medical incident on a scene and thinks that a crime is taking place there, same thing. And HIPAA does not protect your medical records from being subpoenaed or subject to warrants. So your medical record is not going to protect you here. Like, it's, it's just not. Okay. And there's very little you can do about that frankly. And in many cases, your medical records aren't even necessarily yours. I mean, that was a line you guys had in the, the story that you just wrote that was like, we think of our medical records as sort of tied to us as people, especially as like digital things, but they're not. They're these things that are like very hard for us to control or even access that belong often to somebody else, right? Yeah, the hospital and clinic, they own your medical record, really. There, there are some places where there's a little bit more patient control of their medical record, but on the whole, kind of the expectation that people should have is that, you know, my doctor has medical record. I don't own my medical record. And there's a lot of legislation that has given people more visibility into their medical records. Like you have to be able to see it, have to be able to see it is not the same thing as easily being able to see it most of the time, particularly if you're not going to be super aggressive about advocating for yourself, because a lot of times they'll just be like, oh, no, I don't have to, to show that to you. So that can be kind of complicated. But yeah, it's not yours. You don't really have any control over what goes into it. You can petition for things to be taken out of it. But the hospital or doctor doesn't have to say yes. Like that's <laughs> you don't get any say over that. And doctors can put like whatever notes they want. It's often like super decontextualized. Um, so a lot of the concern about how these records can be used to criminalize abortion is that you can tell a story with a medical record that is not real. That is not actually what happened. Someone could look at your medical record with bad intentions and say, I'm going to put all these pieces together and say this looks to me like you had an abortion or, or was seeking out an abortion because it's like not a clear narrative. It's like it's just billing codes a yeah. lot of the time. And the people who are going to be most vulnerable to that sort of manipulation are people who have more stuff in their medical record that could be perceived as bad. So that's going to be people who have limited access to health care, you know, poor people, people of color and communities that have are under-resourced tend to have kind of more stuff in their health record that is going to be coded more negatively, then that stuff can then be used to tell a story that's like, oh, you, you know, were like negligent in X, Y, Z way to your other children. And then we see this bleeding when you were pregnant and you had a pregnancy test and then you were no longer pregnant. And we're going to use just to say that you were like an abusive parent and then you gave yourself an abortion. Like, yeah. When maybe you just, there could be totally reasonable explanations, like for a lot of stuff. Like you can, if you have bad intentions, you can, you can turn this stuff into a bad story. This idea of putting together a narrative is very much also how the personal data comes into the, mm -hmm. the policing of, of abortion. So particularly with, with search history, 
which is another thing that people have rightly flagged, is something that can can be used and is used in a whole range of criminal cases. The reason is that it can be seen as a proxy for people's intent. You know, if you're suddenly searching something like, how do I hide a body? Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then you're best friend or frenemy goes, goes goes missing, then that looks pretty bad for you. But w- w- as far as uh, abortion goes, there's one high-profile case that's often referred to uh, a woman named Latisse Fisher, who is uh, a black woman in Mississippi. She was already a mother of three children. Mm-hmm. She was pregnant, and she had, by her account and her legal team's account, had a stillborn child. Yeah. The state decided to investigate, and the state medical examiner used a controversial test called a, a lung float test. We don't need to get into the details, but had some suspicion that this, the child was actually born alive. Okay. And police somehow, it's not exactly clear how, were able to access Latisse Fisher's search history through her phone and found that she had searched for how to buy misoprostol, uh, abortion pill, online. Because of that, they made the case that she had already demonstrated an intent to end the pregnancy and actually tried to indict her for for murder. For simply searching. Yes. On the grounds that she had already shown intent to get rid of this baby, they were alleging that the child had been born alive and that she had actually killed it or negligently allowed it to, to die. Right. So she was indicted on a murder charge. Subsequently, the case was dropped, but that was years later and understandably completely upended her, her life. Right. Um, but then that's one of the cases that's really referred to a lot in terms of how these how these things, how this this data and things that we might think of as innocuous can then make its way into a criminal case. And these companies like Google, if the cops come to them with a warrant, they will abide by it, right? Absolutely, yeah. So in general they're trying not to disclose data to law enforcement that they don't have to. I think all of these companies do realize that users, you know, we expect a certain degree of privacy. And if they are seen to be very bad at protecting our privacy, then we'll we, go we somewhere else. Or we'll go somewhere else. I- exactly. At the same time, they do comply with law enforcement when they are required to. And if they receive an appropriate warrant or a, a subpoena, which is a little different because it doesn't need to be issued by a judge, then they will generally hand over all of the data that they're required to. So if you are in a state where these rights are now very much under threat, which is quite a few states in in this country, you should be very, very mindful about what you're searching. Even months, years, it sounds like DuckDuckGo is, is a really good thing to maybe start using. Yeah, DuckDuckGo, I think, does have better privacy protections than Google. Mm-hmm. There's also the, the way that the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, puts it in their recommendations is to think about compartmentalization. So I, ideally what you want is just for any of your search history or browsing history, whatever it is, to not really be linked to you. Yeah. So the idea would be that you create an entirely new account. If you're going to use email for any of this stuff, create a new email account. Don't use your regular Gmail or or whatever provider it is. If you're going to be searching, don't be signed in through your regular Google account that will link all of your search history back to you. If possible, people suggest if you have access to another phone that isn't your regular phone, a burner phone, that's a good idea too. Of course, that's not viable for for everyone, but all of these things do help. So these are all tools that that I think everybody in this room and David, where you are as well, are very aware of. We're, we're journalists. These are things that when we're talking with sources, we, we kind of go through these practices with them because we're trying to protect them. And now 
people who aren't necessarily in those situations are also going to be expected to do that and start being much more mindful of their habits because they could come back to haunt them in really horrible fashion. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the unfortunate reality. Yeah. I think it also points to just this much bigger problem that we can't expect everyone, we, we shouldn't expect regular people to be taking the same kind of precautions that we as, say, journalists working with sensitive sources and sensitive material should take, and even recognizing that it's hard for us to, to yes. do things right. I think that's partly why there's been some kind of move to put some of the onus onto the companies collecting the data in the first place. There have been movements to say that Google should not be collecting the kind of data that can be used in the criminalization of abortion. Couldn't it start, I don't know, auto-deleting all of that data after 30 days. That was something I've seen at a lot of journalist organizations. They have Slack, and their Slack will auto-delete every 30 days. And that's because, okay, if they get subpoenaed, then it's like, well, we auto-delete. You can't have that information. It's gone. And that, that seems like something that Google, a large company that is collecting our data solely for financial reasons, could probably do to better protect its customers. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to bring some pretty existential questions for Google and Google users because, yeah, absolutely, Google's business is built on collecting this data, using it to serve ads. We know that they hand over data to law enforcement. Previously, there's been, I would say, broad agreement. This is hand-waving over a lot of, you know, back and forth, but <laughs> broad agreement that if Google is getting a warrant for things, there is some legitimate reason behind it. And now we're in this situation where actually a majority of the country disagrees with the new interpretation of, of the law, and Google is in a position, and it, it's not just Google by any stretch, but Google is in a position of helping the enforcement of a law that fundamentally most of us feel is very unjust. Corin, your, your point about it not being just Google is one I want to talk about here, because I think part of what I've found in reading about this and talking to people about this and even seeing like how others are responding to it is there there's this feeling of just like, helplessness and hopelessness where it's like, okay, you as a person, here are the steps you can take. And it's like, well, yes, but there are also thousands of data brokers out there who are better at collecting your data than you are at hiding your data. It's too much work. There are a lot of people who just don't have the knowledge or tools to do this stuff. It's more than just Google. Like, even if Google decides to be the, the good one here, they're only solving, you know, their slice of the problem. Is there anything that's going to happen here outside of some like magical change in Congress that leads to real actual data privacy reform here? Like, are there real moves that do anything outside of that? I mean, I think we're still we're still in the early stages of this. It's fair to say that it, it is possible Google could retain a lot less data on us. At the same time, they've, they've built an immensely profitable business on keeping all of that data and passing it on to, to advertisers. I think that there has been a growing resistance to that and a, a growing awareness actually of the role of data brokers and the way they built this shadow industry that actually gives a, a, a huge amount of power to advertisers, but potentially to other people trying to employ these same surveillance techniques too. So there's an argument that this, this could bring us to a kind of real inflection point where people realize how, how powerful this is and what the negative consequences are. I think ultimately it, it's too early to say how that will play out. And to be clear, it's, it's not just Google. It's also Apple if you're text messaging. It's Facebook if you're using Instagram or WhatsApp or something like that. Like, well, I guess not WhatsApp because it's got in, in, in encryption, right? Yes. But all of these companies 
are collecting this data. They have all of this data. They have access to a lot of these records, and those can all be subpoenaed. Those can all be acquired by warrant from law enforcement. So it really is like, you know, if somebody is concerned about this, what tools should they be using? DuckDuckGo, it sounds like, probably. As far as email goes, ProtonMail is a, a good encrypted Love email. Mail. For messaging, Signal is a, a good choice if people are able to use that and have other contacts that, that do. I mean, this is, a, this is a great opportunity to download it and tell all of your friends to do it as well. Signal encrypts all of the messages. It doesn't store copies on, on their servers. So because of that, it's not that they're not complying with warrants or subpoenas. It's that if law enforcement served them with a warrant, there really is no way for them to hand over the type of Including the phone carriers who are still on SMS because RCS isn't a thing yet. They're, so they're still on SMS. They are collecting a lot of data around you. Like that, that's something that the SEC, I think, has like allowed in the last couple of years, right? That, that these companies can actually look at all of your your messages, your texts on SMS and collect that data. And if they want to hand it over to law enforcement, they can. Yeah, and, and generally they will, with a, a subpoena, phone carriers will generally give the metadata. Mm -hmm. So they will hand over details about who you call and who you text, but not necessarily the contents of those messages. With a warrant, they will definitely hand over all of the text messages and other saved data like voicemails that they have on their servers and even within a more serious warrant, even, you know, the contents of real-time conversations. Yeah. I noticed in your, in your piece you also mentioned that this applies to banks, this applies to credit card companies, so that actually the best way, if you do find yourself in a situation where you need an abortion, you do go, you get one, don't whip out your normal card, you don't write a check, you should get a gift card. Right? Yeah, I, definitely. So um, that was a recommendation that came from the Digital Defense Fund. They've been working to protect digital uh, abortion rights for a long time. Mm -hmm. And some people have suggested that cryptocurrency is a good use case here. I think that's kind of a... Like if they have your wallet, anybody can track... Yeah, crypto. I think for most people, that's that's probably a, a non-starter unless you've got some serious crypto skills. Yeah. But in in general, yes. I mean, using cash, of course, is great. The the original untraceable currency. But a lot of people don't necessarily like th these procedures. And now, because a lot of times it requires travel, th this is costly. It, it has gone from being like a little expensive to extremely costly. And a lot of people don't have that access to that cash. Yeah. So, and if you do need to pay for things digitally, which there are a lot of situations where you would, you can generally get a prepaid gift card. So, you know, you pay $100 or whatever it is, you get your card loaded with $100, but that isn't tied to your name and address and all of the other information that your credit card is. I also think that, you know, we talk a lot about the things that individuals can do to protect themselves. Those are obviously, like, people are going to have different levels of access to be able to take those steps. Um, yeah. But this is also something that abortion funds, activist groups, community networks have been thinking about and building for a long time. And so I think that it's also you know, good to recognize that there are groups that have the experience and skills and like on the ground understanding of how like different communities and law enforcement, different communities are, are acting and coming after people. You know, this is a situation that is like very big and scary in the sense that you have the power of the state using the power of the surveillance state and tech companies to come after vulnerable people when they're in their most vulnerable moments. And that's like an incredibly overwhelming and scary situation to be in. And, you know, I think that's something that 
comes up a lot or has come up a lot in the past couple of days is like there are people who have been doing the work and understand how to do the work to protect people as best they can and doing what you can to help and lean on those communities that have already been in place is kind of the way that we navigate through some of this stuff because like the imbalance is going to be enormous. Like it is an enormous, enormous imbalance in power. Mm -hmm. And that is like crushing on an individual level. It is slightly less crushing when we lean on and put resources into and support the places that have been doing the on the ground work to build the structures that can keep people as safe as possible. Well, thank all of you for doing this with me. We will obviously be covering this story a lot. Like you said, this is the beginning of a thing that is going to take a long time to play out and we'll see where it goes. So we will have you back in the studio to do this many more times. But thank you both. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome back. I want to tell you a story about recommendations. But first, I want to just do an experiment. And I call this experiment, what does my phone think I'm going to like right now? So let's start on TikTok. This is terrifying. I'm just going to open TikTok and we're going to see what happens. So the first video on my TikTok, when I open it, is a video of Ryan Reynolds about how he's being a good dad. I communicate well with my kids. Which is just absolutely perfectly geared towards me. Then we have a live video of somebody working at Epcot, which seems weird and boring. A duet with two rappers rapping the alphabet. Okay. Very into this. An ad for uh, Milk Foliant, uh, which is a holy grail to skincare, which feels like a sick burn from TikTok. I usually get ADHD ads. I don't know what to make of that. And a video of a guy critiquing someone making a cheeseburger wrapped in bacon. Oh, is that PB&J? Fuck, no. So this is actually pretty on point, I would say. Not perfect, but I'm into most of this stuff. Let's go to Instagram. 
Instagram, there's a video of a snapping turtle opening a beer on a golf course. A Dove Men skincare ad, again with the skincare ads. Okay, Spotify. Spotify thinks I should listen to Land of the Giants from Vox Media Podcast Network. It thinks I should listen to mostly a bunch of music I've been listening to. Oh, and Drake. I don't really like Drake. You can yell at me about that if you want, but Spotify has not yet figured out that I don't really like Drake. So I open Hulu, and Hulu really thinks I should watch Machine Gun Kelly's Life in Pink, which I'm assuming is a documentary about Machine Gun Kelly, and which I can tell you confidently is not a thing I want to watch. Let's go to Netflix. The top recommendation for me is Voyeur, which is, I guess, a new Netflix movie. It says it's provocative, cerebral, and a hidden gem, which is a weird thing to say about the top thing in the Netflix carousel. All right, one more of these. Uh, let's go to Amazon. The top thing is movie tickets for Minions Rise of Gru. It's telling me to keep shopping for foam rollers. I've been shopping for foam rollers because my back hurts all the time because I'm an old, old, old man. Almond Nut Thins, Crackers, Old Spice Deodorant, and a bunch of books in the sex and sexuality category, which I have no answers for that one. Anyway, the point of all this is when you start noticing how pervasive recommendations are in digital life for stuff to read and watch and listen to and eat and look at and go do and buy and basically everything else, you kind of can't stop noticing it. And this is part of the whole premise of the internet, right? All the stuff in the universe is right there. All the platforms, all the systems take all of that stuff. They learn about your habits and they create this beautiful system in which the whole world is endlessly personalized for you. Except it doesn't really work like that, right? Their internet's algorithmic approach to recommendations actually leads to echo chambers and filter bubbles and misinformation and a huge amount of other problems. But let's even leave aside most of the complicated and political stuff for a minute. I just want to talk about a simpler problem. Have you ever wondered why the internet can't just tell you what restaurant you should go to, or which chocolate chip cookie recipe is objectively the best one? Or, this is the one I think everybody experiences, why your streaming recommendations never seem to actually get you. When I open Netflix, I don't want a thousand rows of a thousand icons. I just want Netflix to be like, here, watch this. We know this is what you want. Is that really that hard to do? I've been asking people all over the tech world versions of that question for a few weeks now, and I'm starting to understand why even simple recommendations are a harder problem than I realized. It's kind of our fault. Humans are complicated, it turns out, and we are constantly changing. It's extremely expressive. Uh, here, let me give you an example. That's Akil Ramesh. He's the head of consumer product at Yelp. I recently met a high school friend of mine in Tahoe. He'd recently become a father. He's a vegetarian. And that afternoon, he was talking to me and said, look, I'm really sick of eating Indian food a lot. I'd like to try some Thai food if it's available around. I've got this little baby with me, so I'd love to have some high chairs. And hopefully it's next to the lake because we came here to hang out next to the lake and take a walk there afterwards. That is the intent. That's very expressive. When somebody opens the app, they probably hit one button or search two words you know, Thai restaurants. With that, it's really impossible to guess the rest of it. So this is exactly why it is not a straightforward solution. Akil's point, and one that I heard from a lot of folks in tech, is that understanding what you actually want at any given time is virtually impossible. Because it's based on so many things beyond, say, what kind of food you like. Our preferences and tastes change based on who we're with, where we are, what we ate yesterday, what commercials we saw today, and like a thousand other things that even we might not understand. But there is a fun thought experiment buried in there. 
So let's just say, for the sake of argument, that a service like Yelp could know everything. It becomes this omniscient AI, knows everything about you and your life every second. Yelp would know I had pasta for dinner last night, it's raining, I'm home alone, I just binged all of Stranger Things, I'm getting over being sick, and I had a long day at work. If it knew all of that, could Yelp just turn into a big bring me dinner button that I just smash and food arrives 20 minutes later? Akil said no to that without missing a beat. And actually beyond that, he said it's not even worth trying for that because I would probably instinctively mistrust whatever showed up at my door. I often joke about this, that if God landed in front of me and said, this is the person you're going to marry and you never have to waste a second, I wouldn't believe a second of it. <laughs> I, would, I would go do my exploration. I think he's right. Even if the objectively correct thing for me to eat was sweet and sour chicken, I'd take one look at it and be like, Ugh, I just wanted a salad. That's a big part of why most folks I talk to aren't trying to build a perfect recommendations machine to give you the one true recommendation like that. Instead, it's a process. Have you ever heard the term algatorial? It's a horrible term, and I hate it, and I will not use it again, but it's one I heard from a bunch of companies I talked to, and it refers to a sort of human-machine symbiosis that is probably the best source we had of good recommendations. It's part algorithmic, part editorial. In some instances, the editorial portion of that equation comes from people who work at the company or platform itself. Think about the people who curate playlists at Spotify, for instance, or the editorial team at Pocket, the super popular Read It Later app. Matt Coyden, who runs Pocket at Mozilla, said that that team at Pocket is the true secret sauce. We essentially have humans, you know, our users going out in the world and finding all these amazing things and, and saving them into Pocket. And then we use algorithms to kind of create prospects and kind of pull them out. And we use editors, human editors, to then take those prospects and combine them in interesting ways and pull them together and put them in on kind of different surfaces. In other cases, the human side of the human-machine relationship is you and me, the people actually using the services. When you listen to an album a hundred times in a row, or you give a movie a thumbs up on Netflix, or you go into those Yelp filters and select pet friendly, you're giving the system super strong signals about what matters to you. In general, if these apps and platforms can get us to give them more of that, to just tell them what we like and don't like, things can actually get better really fast. Here's how Naveen Gavini, the SVP of product at Pinterest, explained it to me. If you compare it to you know, a physical personalization experience, like let's say for me, I have a barber that I've been going to for 10 years that cuts my hair. And if you think about that experience, every time it's a personalized experience and I don't need to tell him when I walk in how I want my haircut because he knows me, but it started with that first conversation. It was an explicit conversation on like, hey, how do you generally like your haircut? And then from there, we kind of learned and grew together, right? So that's what we strive for kind of at Pinterest to make that dialogue a little bit more explicit. Pinterest is like based on that theory, right? You pin a bunch of stuff that you like, and then Pinterest's job is to give you more stuff that you like. But even that is a tricky trade-off. I don't want useless recommendations, but I also don't want to fill out a form every time I open Netflix or have to spend a month using a platform before it gives me any good new stuff. Some companies like Pocket don't have to make that trade. They have it easy because their whole reason for existing is just to fill it with stuff that you like. Saving something is this private and personal thing for the most part. Maybe it is has some aspirational aspects to it for sure. But not everybody has it so good. 
So one trick you'll see in a lot of content apps, particularly, is that screen right when you sign up that asks you to pick a bunch of genres or a few favorite bands or whatever, just to kind of get you going. One app I use called Likewise makes you pick 20 shows and movies you like before it'll even let you in the app. People actually enjoy this whole experience of telling. That's Salim Hamdani, the CTO at Likewise. The payoff is huge. The more you tell, the better it's going to be, right? So people never stop at 20. It's kind of funny. Like we say, you have to have at least 20. They keep going because they, first of all, it's a playful experience. And then those just add up. Likewise is one of the few companies I've found that's trying to build a platform out of all kinds of recommendations. Movies, shows, books, podcasts, they all live in this one place in Likewise. But I should say, even Likewise doesn't believe in the idea of the one true recommendation. The company actually started out to be more like a social network built around content, but it has shifted then towards putting content at the core and using your network as just another way to get you good recommendations. We said, you know, this is great for the people who bring their whole social network in or even bring a couple of friends right in, but we're being unrealistic. We need to supplement this. That's Ian Morris, the CEO at Likewise. Likewise now has an editorial team that is scouring the internet looking for what people like and are talking about. It also has lots of social features so that I can like make a list of all my favorite early 2000s rom-coms and make it publicly available. I found one really good one just yesterday that's titled Scariest Paranormal Movies, and it has 28 options that I'm going to just have to start working through quickly. But Likewise also set out to build a recommendations AI that was better than anybody else's. It starts, as you might guess, with those 20 movies and shows that you pick right at the very beginning when you sign up for the app. When you tell us, like, these are the genres that I really enjoy, you pick drama, comedy, thriller, true crime, and all that delightful experience. And then you go and pick items, and all of your picking is Western, war. So we know a lot about you. You think you like romantic comedy, but everything you're enjoying is dark crime. Now, that's a very good signal for me. I likewise, loves that. Likewise takes all that information about you and the stuff that you like and puts you in a cluster. Cluster is the technical term, and it's one that I heard a lot. It's just a group of other people who like the same stuff that you like. And that, it turns out, is the single most important thing to get right in the recommendations game. Right now we have 5 million or so users. We basically cluster them into different clusters. And then that gives us an initiation point to say, how many people are like David in the world? And how many clusters can we create? how granular those clusters can be or how broad those clusters can be. And how does it actually interact with the trending curated content in the marketplace? Once you start there, everything opens up. I went into this wanting there to be this crazy complicated system going on behind the scenes, but it turns out that the best, most reliable thing AI recommendation systems do is basically a version of this. You liked Severance, and all these other people who liked Severance also liked Yellowstone and The Lincoln Lawyer, so you probably will too. That sounds so simple, right? Like, too simple. But it turns out it's the best strategy we've got so far. And then, as the platform, the more users you get and the more stuff that they tell you they like, the better and smaller and more accurate to you those clusters become. But still, recommendations are tricky for lots of other reasons too. For one thing, giving you the exact right thing probably isn't a company's only goal. They want you to keep coming back to explore new things. I mean, if HBO Max was just like, hey, here are the six things on HBO Max that you're ever going to like, and you can watch them all right now in a row, that's kind of bad business, right? There's also a big data gathering issue here, too. 
all that information about where you are, how you're feeling, what you're doing, who you're with, would you trade that for better Netflix recommendations? I don't think I would. And the companies I talk to don't think most people would. And beyond even that, Naveen from Pinterest told me, users ought to be able to control what we see and why. I think as consumers, we all have a right to have greater transparency into the sort of signals and what's being used, um, whether it's implicitly or explicit things, and have the right to change those. But ultimately, the biggest problem is a philosophical one. The idea that there is a right answer is just flawed. I mean, even when you actually choose something to watch or eat or read or do, does that mean that it was the correct answer? No, it's just the one you picked. In that sense, Netflix's play something randomizer button is basically as good a recommendation system as any. Just gives you something and it's probably fine. So I think the short version of the story is that I'm never going to get a world where Spotify always knows what to put on when I put in my AirPods, and Netflix won't just play the right show as soon as I launch the app. But things can get better than they are, and I think they will. We might soon do away with the endless side-scrolling lists of TV posters and instead get a handful of really good, really personalized ideas of what to watch. That's about as good as it's ever going to get, but I think I'll take it. All right, we're going to take a break, and then the next thing we're going to talk about is gaming laptops, and specifically why Asus is making buying the best gaming laptop so unnecessarily complicated. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back. So in the last couple of years, we here at The Verge have covered Asus laptops a lot. Which is not that weird on its face. Asus makes a lot of laptops. Some of them are very good. We cover laptops. There you go. But it's the names of those laptops I just cannot get over. There's the Asus ROG Flow X16 and the Asus ROG Zephyrus G14 and the Asus ROG Strix Scar 15. I can't make heads or tails of any of it. Except that ROG stands for Republic of Gamers and might be pronounced ROG. But I'm pretty sure that underneath all of that insane naming is a really good set of gaming laptops including maybe the one you should buy. Luckily for me, The Verge's Monica Chin understands what Asus is doing here much better than I do. She's also reviewed a whole bunch of these ROG laptops over the years, and she's here to explain to me what's going on. Hey, Monica. Hello. We're here to talk about gaming laptops, and I have a bunch of very specific questions for you, all of which end with me being really annoyed at how products are named. But first, let's real quick just like 
lay the land of the gaming laptop market. Because I feel like gaming laptops are still like a slightly non-obvious thing to some people. Like gaming PCs, people understand they're like the big towers with RGB. And then there's like, just buy a MacBook. But in the middle, the gaming laptop space has gotten really good. There's a ton of options out there now. Give me the kind of rough sense of like, who's out there buying a gaming laptop and what are they looking for right now? I mean, I think an interesting thing is that for ages and ages, gaming laptops were really like just for gaming. There's like the stereotype of, oh, like a gamer who like sits in her basement. For a while, that's sort of who they were targeting. You know, gaming laptops yeah. were like huge. They were like eight pounds. They were like only meant to sit on your desk. They had like no battery life decked out in all kinds of like RGB because it's like it's just going to be in your basement. Where are you going to take it? They were just garish. And that's what a gaming laptop was for like a while. But a new, I think, vision of what a gaming laptop can be has emerged in the past decade or so. And I think the Razer Blade 13 was like an early example of like a gaming laptop that could very easily also just be a laptop, but could play games. In 2017 or whenever that the first one came out, that was like a pretty big deal that you had a 13 inch laptop that could run a game and not have it be really, really terrible. Mm -hmm. So now I think a lot of popular options that you're seeing today are, you know, stuff like the Zephyrus G14, which we're going to talk about. And, you know, the Razer Blade smaller family, like the Razer Blade 14 laptops that really like can run games, but are also like something you could bring to the cafe or could use at work. So I think that's sort of a big shift in the market that we've been seeing recently. So, and then in this space, this Asus line is one you've covered a lot, especially over the last two years. And I confess it makes absolutely no sense to me. Like one of the themes of the Vergecast is that I think all product names are terrible and should be solved. And this might be one of the worst named set of products I can think of <laughs> for what I what seems to be a very good set of laptops. So we're going to try to make sense of this for people. Let's start at the very top here. What is the, first of all, is it ROG or is it ROG? You know, we talked to Napoleon Liu from Asus a couple of days ago, and he said raw ROG as well. For the ROG lines, as of right now, we have three main lines. Some people I've talked to that company say ROG. Whatever you call it, what is this lineup? What is its job? It's their gaming line. They have like another line, the TUF line, that's sort of like more entry level, but the ROG laptops are really what you're getting if you're like really in, into the gaming space. Okay. And where would you put it? kind of in the scheme of the rest of the gaming laptop world. I feel like, you know, you have the the brands everybody knows, the Alienwares and the Razors, and where does ROG fit kind of in the whole gaming laptop space? Well, they make the best ones you can buy. I mean, the ROG Zephyrus G15 is currently our top gaming laptop pick. The ROG Zephyrus G14 is going to be very high on the list very soon. I just reviewed it and haven't updated the page yet, but it's going to be very high on that list as well. They are the best gaming laptops you can buy for your money right now. Well, then all the more reason we should sort this out for people. So even within this unpronounceable top name, there are a bunch of other names. So there's the Flow, there's the Zephyrus, there's the Strix. And then within those, there's a bunch of other names. But like, make sense of the lineup for me here. If you're like listening to this podcast and you're like, which gaming laptop should I buy? The Zephyrus is probably the one that you are looking at. Those are like the normal people looking laptops. Okay. They're very nice looking. They're very light. They're really easy to carry around. They have great keyboards. They have great touchpads. They have amazing battery life, like some of the best battery life, not only among gaming laptops, but like among laptops in general. They last forever. They have great frame rates. They're not like outrageously priced. In fact, the G14 is like very reasonably priced depending on the model that you get. Napoleon told us like the G14 is their best selling line. I think people really, really appreciated the 14 inch factor, which I would say we were one of the first, if, if not the first to offer it in a gaming laptop. So people love that. 
the Strix is like we were saying earlier, like the traditional sort of like garish, like gaming laptop for your basement. That's what the Strix line is. Those are gaming laptops. They are just for games. If you're going to buy that and expect that it's going to last you eight hours on battery, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, these seem like the ones where like laptop is kind of a stretch for some of these. We're not quite getting to that point. Oh, okay. But they don't have great touchpads. They don't have great keyboards. They're not terrible touchpads or keyboards, but you know, they're not like category topping from my perspective. They're not like my favorite ones. They are covered in lights. The Strix Scar is like one of the most obnoxious looking laptops I've ever seen. There's like a light bar along the bottom that changes colors all the time. There's like lights on the lid, like coming out of the logo. There's like the keyboard is just constantly animated. It's all RGB be everywhere you know who you are if you're buying the Strix like <laughs> those are for gamer capital G people uh, the flow is kind of a weird one because the flow for a while was not its own line they put out this laptop called the flow x13 and it was like really funky it was like really thin really light two-in-one which there are not gaming two-in-ones like that's just like a very unheard of weird thing it had like a really cool design there was like some graffiti-ish type stuff on the lid it had this like super high resolution screen it had like a not very good gpu inside and then it, it was bundled with this xg mobile eGPU, and that like obviously gave you much higher frame rate so the idea was like okay during the day you can like have this light two-in-one that you know you can do your work on hang out with your friends whatever and then at night you bring it home you put it on your desk you plug it into the xg mobile oh and now it's a gaming laptop I guess that product did well enough. They announced they were going to be putting out a whole line of flow products, which are sort of that same idea of like, okay, it's really thin. It's really light during the day. And then you plug it into this XG mobile at night and it gets you desktop frame rates. Okay. Well, this is all very helpful. So for most people, the Zephyrus is the answer, uh, but this is the problem. And this is where I start to get like truly driven insane by what Asus is doing here is that is nowhere near the end of figuring out which one of these models you're supposed to buy. There's M's and G's and there's a whole numbering scheme. Do any of these mean anything to anyone? <laughs> so the G's and the M's are in the Zephyrus line. Okay. The G's are the ones that you probably want if you're like listening to this podcast and you're like, which one should I buy? Those are the top sellers. And those are, as Asus told us, those are the really good value buys. The difference between these two, it's basically the processor and also the price point. If they're like more budget conscious, then they go for the G15. G stands for good value. Like G it. stands for good value, yeah. G stands for great laptop. Perfect. So I think the confusion probably comes between the G15, which is currently our top pick for best laptop, and the M16, which looks exactly like the G15, but it is named with an M. Perfect. The main difference is Intel versus AMD. So the G14 is now fully AMD powered. It is not only an AMD processor, but it's also an AMD GPU. The M16 is an Intel device. Like for the past few times it's been released, it's been an Intel device. The first, like most easiest, the easiest differentiator is size. Like the G14 is 14 inches, the G15 is 15 inches, the M16 is 16 inches. 16 versus 15 is obviously not like the biggest difference. So the Intel versus AMD is really the other differentiator. Okay. The Intel processor brings like its various Intel things. AMD processor brings a lot longer battery life, a lower price range and better frame rates. But the target audience, I think, is largely similar. It's just companies often put out these sort of dual, like this is not an uncommon thing to see in gaming laptops. Like they'll put out like one AMD version and one like Intel version and the way they'll pitch it. And this is the way Napoleon pitched it to us in the interview. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, AMD fans can buy the AMD one. And Intel fans can buy the Intel one. I know people have a preference. So if they like the AMD processor, they go for the G15. 
I'm not convinced these people exist. Like, and I, and I said this in the interview, like, I just don't think there are that many people out there who are like, ah, oh, I'm rah, rah, Intel, like, I'm rah, rah, AMD. Like, I think most people, like, want the better one. And, like, in most cases, that is the AMD one. Like, given the current market, the G15 is just getting us better battery life, better frame rates, better battery gaming performance. But there are some folks who probably will do better on the Intel one because Intel does have some features that make certain apps run better on it, like, Quick sync for Premiere Pro and video stuff is like a huge benefit to people who do that work. Um, Intel has Thunderbolt, of course, which is, you know, lots of people, if they have Thunderbolt accessories, then you're going to want to go with Intel. So I would say that the M16 is a little bit more niche for people who like have a specific reason they want Intel and AMD. The G series is sort of more of like the mainstream one between those two. Got it. Okay. So G stands for great laptop and M stands for like meh. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. And that was sort of how Alice, our reviewer, felt when she reviewed the M16 for us this year. She was like, eh, it's fine. Okay. I also think to anyone listening to this show who has like really strong chip brand loyalty, I'd really like to talk to you. I have a lot of questions for you. I'm sure there are some of you who exist, but I just can't imagine that, you know, the average person in Best Buy is going to be like, oh, I know exactly which processor company is for me, you know? Right. Well, especially in the face of like, I don't want the best one. I just want the one that's Intel is a, is like a pretty, it's a pretty wild thing to feel in 2022. But I, I respect you if you feel that. <laughs> this is too many options, right? Like. The laptop world, as you and I both know, has always had too many options. Everybody has too many specs, too many SKUs. None of it has ever made any sense. And I feel like one of the reasons Apple has been very successful for a long time is they're just like, here's the MacBook Air. It's just, we did it. Have the MacBook Air. The gaming laptop world seems to be like crazier at this than most. Like I was on the the ROG webpage and they have this amazing thing where it just says, view all recommended products. And there's 107 of them. And that is too <laughs> many recommended products. So like, is this a reasonable strategy for Asus here? Like, why are they doing this? Why is this so crazy? Yeah, I mean, I think gamers are pickier. <laughs> I'll give you that. And they know what they want more, I guess. More people who are shopping for a gaming laptop, like have a set list of things that they think they need. Like they need this much memory. They need this level of upgradability. You know, they want this screen. I think there are just a lot more things in there. You know, the, a lot of these are also people who like build their own PCs. And these are people who are sort of more plugged in and attentive to that stuff than I think like my dad who is just wants the next MacBook Pro for his Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> I would guess that that's part of it. In general, they're trying to cater to a really wide market. They said this to us in the interview. They're trying to spread a really wide net. And this is something that a lot of companies that aren't Apple do. You know, when we, I interviewed the CEO of Acer at Computex last year, and I basically asked him the question you're asking about Acer. So I was like, why do you have all these like random products that like we don't really understand? Like, are you just throwing shit at the wall? And he was like, yes, that's what we're doing. <laughs> we are just trying a lot of stuff. And I think that's a strategy that a lot of these companies take. I appreciate the honesty, I suppose. But I wonder... Two things make me think that might be about to change. And I'm curious what you think about this hypothesis, which is that like, A, as you were saying, I think a lot of people have come into this market over the last couple of years as they've been looking for a device that can kind of do everything, including play games. And obviously just like the pool of people who play games is growing really fast. And I think is going to expand it to people who want to play games, but don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about the hardware they use to play games. And then also it seems like we've gone within the PC market to a couple of like 
de facto choices. Like I spend a lot more time now telling people who ask me to basically buy one of two things. It's just like the Dell XPS 13 is really good. The HP Spectre X360 is really good. You will almost certainly be happy with one of those two things if what you're looking to buy is a Windows PC. And it feels like even the Dells of the world still make way too many laptops, but make fewer laptops than they used to because they're just sort of like centralizing on their good ideas. Is the gaming laptop market going to do that a little bit too, do you think? Like, will, will Asus eventually just like listen to you and stop making all this other stuff and just be like, look, it doesn't have 12 names. It's just called the Zephyrus and it's very good and you should buy it. I think price range, the way that that's looked at in gaming laptops is like just a little bit different from the Dell XPS 13 market. Again, sort of referencing my interview with Acer last year, their top selling lines aren't their Predator. Mm. Like it's not their really fancy stuff. Like it's the Nitro, like it's the stuff at Best Buy that's like $800. And, you know, Napoleon in this interview, you know, he told us as well, the G14 is their best selling model. It's not the G15. It's not the Strix and the Scar. I mean, those stuff they told us also sells well, obviously, but... The G14, you know, their lowest and arguably model in the Zephyrus series is what's selling. Hmm. When I'm talking to someone and they're asking me, like, I like need like a personal laptop. What laptop should I buy? I will probably say buy the XPS because even if you feel like it's a little out of your price range, I think it's going to save you money in the long run because, you know, it'll last you longer. And like all you're doing is Excel spreadsheets, like whatever. Right. With gaming, I really think there's a lot more that you have to consider when it comes to what is the best one for your money? Because depending on the games you're playing and depending on the frame rates that you want, lots of people do not need to be spending as much as like the G15 or spending as much as the Scar. And I do think that there are people for whom like, you know, if you're just playing like League of Legends or just playing like Overwatch or whatever, and you don't care about having it on the maximum graphic settings, I will tell you to just spend like $600 or $700, $800. Like, I don't think you even need to go up to the G15. There are a lot more categories of people in the gaming sphere. And I think there are probably fewer people for whom the top options are really the one that you should necessarily be recommending um, because the top options are overkill for most people in a way that I think like the XPS isn't overkill for most people. All of what you just said is totally true, but it does feel like if you were to make a default recommendation, it's the Zephyrus G14, right? And it's the base model? No, so the Saga with Zephyrus G14 is the first one they sent me to review was like one of the most expensive ones. And part of the reason it was the most expensive was it has this like fancy little display on the lid that like is like animated, oh, yeah. like little animated LEDs. And it's very cool. Like there's like pets you can have on it that you can like feed and you can like put words on. You can have it say like hello to your friends on if you want. And it's very cool, but it was like over $2,000. And I was like, no one should buy this. Fair. So after I slammed that one in a review, they were like, do you want to review one that's like $1,000 cheaper? And I was like, yes. So they sent me that one. And I was like, oh yeah, this one's very good. Get this one. So it's a thing where like, if you want the LED display, then like you're going to have to pay more for that, like whatever. But most people don't need to spend money on the LED display and you can get a great laptop with great frame rates. Yeah, just buy it and then buy yourself like an LED belt buckle and you will have solved all your problems. A 14 screen is going to be big enough for everyone. So, you know, I think that looking at the G15 is is also a reasonable thing for a lot of people. But the 14, I think, is very nice and very light and portable. And so if you're someone like me who really prioritizes being able to take it around to places, being able to travel with it, um, I think the 14 is, is is a very good option for you. I like it. And I'm going to put links to all of this stuff in the show notes because these names are, like I said, very confusing. They're very confusing. Yeah. Monica did all these reviews. They're all very good. 
one of the things I think is interesting is, you know, we did after doing this interview with Napoleon, he did tell us like, yeah, we need to make our naming simpler. Like it's too confusing. It is something that we need to make it clear for everyone. What is it that we're offering? Because it is true that uh, we have put a lot of thought into the different series and we try to offer the best options for the different audiences that are looking into powerful uh, devices. So yeah, we need to make that clearer so people can get what they want. That makes me feel slightly better. We'll see if they ever fix it. You'll come back on and we'll just, we'll, we'll cheer for them. <laughs> All right, Monica, thank you. This, this is really fun. This is really helpful. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's it for The Vergecast this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, there is tons more coverage of everything we talked about at TheVerge.com, and you can also follow all of us on Twitter. Corin is Corin TXT. Nicole is Nicole Wetzman. Alex is Alex H. Kranz. Monica is MC Squared 96. And I'm Pierce. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Eleanor Donovan is our executive producer. And The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you have thoughts, feedback, feelings, or more questions about Asus laptops, you can always email vergecast at theverge.com and reach all of us. Alex, Neil, and I will be back on Friday to talk about the week in tech news. See you then. Rock and roll. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.